You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. In this episode, we're joined by Andrew Norton, widely thought of as um, one of the most respected commentators and researchers on the policy in the higher education sector. So I'm really looking forward to talking to him. How are you doing, Carl? I'm good. I'm really wrapped as well that you got Andrew on the on the show. You've got a never-ending list of really uh, interesting, impressive uh, guests for us. Yeah, well, I think it's um, a sign of a number of different things. I, I, I imagine I'm really pleased with how HeadX is developing as a as a podcast and as a collaboration between us coming into the sector. But I think it's also mm. um, a bit of a sign of the the times that our universities are going through. We've matured through some of the crisis, and we're now starting to grapple with some of the really important issues in times that, let's face it, have never been tougher for Australian universities. Yeah, the, uh, the interest in strategy has, is, uh, is interesting. You know, you, you get periods in business where things are smooth sailing and strategies becomes a, a, another business function that's got sort of equal weight into other operational tasks. And right now, you know, obviously it's elevated because the need or the, the need for a more pertinent um, persuasive plan has never been more pronounced. Well, I think um, for much of 2020, really through from the first signs of, of, of challenges to the sector through the pandemic and international student numbers in February, right through to the budget being said, I guess, was one of the big landfalls um, and breakthroughs, is that there's been great uncertainty. And I think for about the first time, we've got an increased and sufficient level of certainty for universities to seek clarity with where they're going with their strategies. And that's where we're up to now, I think. So what did you think with uh, your conversation? I'm going to hear from Andrew shortly, but um, I know you've probably had experience with Andrew previously and, and he's very well respected in the industry. What, what makes him so so well regarded? Well, I, I, I think the fact that he knows the way things work, both from within the department, the federal department, and also from within so many universities, but also he's got this great ability to um, have access to and to be able to analyze and understand in a really objective way. He's not aligned, even though he's got a position at, at now with a university, he's not really aligned in a leadership sense with any groups. And he's really good at looking at data and just letting the data itself tell us where we're up to in terms of what the sector's doing with a really objective hat. And, and that sort of objectivity with data in a period of certainty when we're revisiting strategy is going to be vital for Australian universities right now. Great. Let's have a listen to what he had to say. We're joined today on our podcast by somebody that's widely regarded as a leading policy advisor to the sector, now working as an ANU professor of practice. After eight years of working at the Grattan Institute and many assignments for the department in Canberra. Welcome to the higher education experience, Andrew Norton. Thank you, man. Andrew, um, interesting times. You've, you've been a policy advisor, a researcher, one of the leading commentators on the Australian higher education system for many years now. But have you ever known our Australian universities to be under as much financial pressure as they are right now? You would have to go back many, many decades to get anything remotely equivalent uh, such as the post-World War II era, where they were really struggling after a couple of decades of austerity. But there's nothing like this, where this is 
this is a, you know a fall from a great height because this century has actually been quite good for universities. I had this you know unprecedented boom in international students and things have been relatively good on the domestic funding side despite the constant complaints of the sector. And so having to adjust to a world in which revenue is much lower is going to be very, very painful for many institutions. Painful. And um, I guess pain comes in terms of what you're suffering, but also in terms of knowing whether you're going to be suffering it or, or not. I, I presume that we'd conclude that when when the budget gave us the one-off research dividend and now that the, the Jobs Ready Graduate package has, has been passed, that at least universities might have some greater certainty about the picture they're going to be facing in the 2020 than they've had for a while. What, what do you think is the greatest areas of uncertainty that they'd be seeking greater clarity for in the next couple of months? Well, at some level, I think the key thing is really when do international students return and on what scale? And unfortunately, no one can tell them the answer to that. You know, at best, you can make an educated guess about where we'll be with COVID in six months or 12 months time and some you know, sense of what the international student demand will be. But I would say it's going to be some years probably before we understand what the new normal is for, for international education. On the domestic policy side, uh, we probably do have a better idea of where things are going, but they're not going in a very attractive direction. So from that point of view, it's not a solution to uh, any problems the sector has now, but at least the, the broad parameters of what is likely to happen are known and to some extent, you can work around those known parameters. Yeah, we, 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 we know what the parameters are, but what, maybe we don't know how the parameters are going to play out with each other. I mean, you, the, the changes in student and government contributions by fund, funding clusters, it's, it's received a lot of headline press about increases in costs to students um, and what it will mean to different parts of universities. But I think some of your arguments recently in the public domain have been that we it, it might not lead to the intended policy outcomes that the minister and the department had. Is that right? What, what, what are your expectations of the responses that students will make in their subject choices, what universities will do in their admissions decisions, and what the government's likely to do over the next few months or years in monitoring and reviewing this policy that we're certain what it is, but we don't know what it's going to generate? My argument is there are contradictions in the heart of job-ready graduates. And this has come about because there are two intersecting policy imperatives going on. Uh, one is to change the total funding rate, so the Commonwealth plus the student contribution to match a, a study of teaching and scholarship costs done by Deloitte Access Economics. And the other is to try and steer student preferences and through them enrolments uh, to courses that the government believes are job ready, that have better employment prospects or are national priorities in some other ways. And where we get to contradiction is that in some of the fields the government has deemed uh, job ready or national priorities, which include science, engineering, teaching, nursing, the total funding rate goes down, so the uni gets less. And so even though the student contribution is also going down, so marginally more financially attractive for students, whose incentives will actually drive behaviour in the end. And my argument is that students aren't particularly price sensitive, but universities do have a reason for being price sensitive, particularly, as we've just said, in the midst of a financial crisis. And therefore, we may get you know, no positive university response 
to student demand if it does in fact change. On the other hand, you've got fields like arts or business or law, uh, where the student contribution goes up to try and discourage enrollments, but the total funding rate driven by this Deloitte study uh, also goes up. So it's more attractive for the universities to offer places in those fields than it is under the current system. And so which of these forces will dominate? Who knows? The further we peer into all of this, the, the further the apparent certainty becomes cloudy, doesn't it? It's um, certainly something that needs, uh, needs its eye keeping on it very closely. But I wonder if we can just step back for this a little while. Little while. We've talked in this conversation around changes in government and student contributions and the discounting of short courses. Where are those two things together taking us more broadly in terms of the long-term finances and the business models that will be sustainable for our universities in the future, do you think? Well, micro-credentials are somewhat flavour of the month sort of more broadly, but some work that I did late last year sort of put a sceptical light on that. So at one level, there's nothing new about short courses. There's always been a big market for them. And beyond the age of 30, uh, people have always been more likely to do non-credentialed than credentialed study. The curious thing, though, is that as far as we can tell, the number of people taking these short courses, albeit not taught by universities typically, has actually been in decline for maybe 10 years. So it's not the trend that we think it is. Uh, I can't prove it because the data isn't good enough, but uh, my suspicion is that what's going on is that there's a whole lot of relatively short courses you can do for free online. And so to some extent, there's been substitution going on that people who once might have done a one or two day course uh, are now deciding, well, I can just learn these bits and pieces in my own time or at work time, but uh, rather than sitting down for one or two days at a paid course. And so it's much cheaper, much more targeted. I only learn the very precise thing that I want to learn. And it happens exactly when you need to know that information, not in two or three weeks' time when the course is scheduled. And so in some ways, the micro-credentials are sort of challenged by you know, very cheap or, or free courses online and with the more traditional credentials on the other side. So they're actually in a tough commercial space. I'm sure some organisations can make them work, but uh, the idea that there are billions of dollars to be had in this market that are just sitting there, I think is not right. So some organisations can make this work. And we've been talking up until now about the 39 Australian universities. Do, do you actually see that some of these changes in funding that we're describing and, and the policy settings more generally are creating, are opening the door for a, an increased play by private providers and new entrants into the Australian domestic market? I'm sure they will try. And, you know, it was interesting that a number of private providers put up their hands for the short courses and got them. On the other hand, as I've long observed about this industry, the private higher education industry is quite small and it's quite niche. And so even if it had steady double digit growth rates, it's still not going to have the physical reach uh, of the, the public universities. And it's still not going to have a major presence in a large number of fields where it's not active at all or is active on a very, very small scale. And so, uh, while I'd be sympathetic to them growing, I just can't see it happening on a big scale anytime soon. And of course, it's not as if the public universities will be passive in response to competition. They will, they will fight hard. So um, just reflecting on all that we've discussed there so far today, then, 
I wonder if, um, I mean, the, the pandemic itself has changed, obviously, very, has made a big impact on the operations of universities. But we've been discussing the changes in finances and policy settings and competitive environment, too. Do, do, do you do you see that the strategies that Australian universities will come in will have come into twenty twenty with? Is it inevitable that they need to be revisited and reset in the light of where we currently now are? Well, I'm sure that's a process going on at every institution, just because on neither the domestic nor the international side, uh, the assumptions behind strategic plans as of February twenty twenty still valid. And so clearly the plan has to be revised and revised quite significantly. Obviously, this is a bigger issue for the users who are very reliant on internationals and for the, some of the more domestic orientated ones. But uh, nevertheless, none of them are in the situation they thought they were going to be in uh, at the beginning of 2020. And one of the criticisms, is it a criticism or is it an observation that has been made as of maybe particularly Australian universities over the recent past is that they've tended to want to imitate each other and all be much the same. There hasn't, maybe there hasn't been much differentiation. Do, do you see that where we're currently up to and everything that we've been commenting on is creating a greater driver for specialization and differentiation? Or will that push to be like each other and simply be better and higher in the rankings remain as the major competitive driver, do you think? Look, I think they probably, like there are common forces around the regulation of what you have to be to be a university and the common funding system. That means there are parallels, strong parallels between them. But on the other hand, they've got very different student bases, you know, very different mixes of online and on campus, uh, very different mixes of research and teaching, very different mixes of international students and domestics and, and within the international students, quite different uh, uh, country source backgrounds. So I think there is a fair amount of diversity already in the system. I guess the question of specialization comes back to what I was saying earlier, which is that if you find that you can no longer support, say, some of your smaller fields on the new funding rates, is the logic behind that that you get out of that field and let another organization get its economies of scale up in that field? I think the big constraint on this for Australia, though, is that because there's a relatively low propensity to travel to study compared to other countries, uh, or other countries like, say, like the UK or the US, that really puts greater pressure back on the local university uh, to offer as many of the courses that the local constituents are likely to want as they possibly can. Going back to my point about their mission-driven institutions. And so that's what I think is probably the, the one of the big tensions here that I... Their mission will be, if people in our, our catchment area want to do course X, we have to think very, very carefully about deciding not to offer course X uh, in the future, even if it's not particularly profitable for us. And um, saying that we've not had a great propensity to travel to study, we, we don't seem to be doing much traveling of any sort at the moment and have much prospect into the future. But we've, we've had a big movement to online delivery and the have, have we, are we experiencing a significant digital disruption? I mean, do you actually see that in an online education, increasingly online world that's been digitally disrupted, that, that concept of a local catchment will be as strong or will it lessen in its importance? Uh, interestingly, when I last looked at this, which is probably six, seven years ago, there was still this local element even to online so that 
universities that did have strong online components nevertheless still had the vast majority of their students from at least within their state <laughs> Uh, maybe just brand recognition that the universities in your state are relatively well known to the potential students in your state. We are, we are definitely seeing digital disruption, I think, in the postgraduate market. That is, there's been a big shift towards uh, online studying. It's majority now for postgraduates. But for domestic undergraduate school leavers, I think it's still a different story. Well, this year they're all stuck online, but... Uh, in preceding years, still a bit about 90% of enrolments are um, on campus, or at least technically on campus, even though they do a lot of study online. And I think this is because going to university is still a rite of passage, it's a broader social experience. And so the whole lot of things that simply cannot be done online, even if the educational technology is better online, which it may well be in some cases, they're not very good on campus lecture it's still not delivering exactly the same product. And therefore I don't think that we'll see a radical shift to majority online in that school lever market. So what are the most significant, well, let, let me put it to you that what I think I'm hearing you say that the most significant change in the strategic drivers for universities that will, in, I, th I think in your words, have to revisit their strategies will be the changes in the financial settings. I think the financial settings are the number one. Um, then there's this other issue, which I sort of haven't mentioned, which is that we do have this demographic baby boom moving its way through the system who will start reaching university age in the mid 2020s. And so the question is, can they be accommodated? And so part of the rationale for job ready graduates was that they, that this was one of the reasons for doing it but really there's not much in job-ready graduates that guarantees that this, the universities can respond to this. So what they have done is that reduce the average subsidy per student. So basically universities have to offer more places for each million dollars uh, on average. But the trouble is when you have these very different Commonwealth contributions, which they have from you know, 1,100 to 27,000, the concept of an average is kind of not really telling you all you need to know because not many students are actually getting the average rate. And so one of the other contradictions that I've pointed out about job-ready graduates is the extent that the agenda of pushing students into these uh, so-called job-ready fields with high Commonwealth contributions is successful, uh, the plan to expand student places will be unsuccessful because the universities can actually deliver fewer places in some of these fields to get their million dollars than they could under the, the current system. The only way you can really guarantee additional places is to increase the Commonwealth grant scheme, but that's actually declining in the forward estimates. And so it really relies on a big increase in the CGS in the mid 2020s. And that's basically just when the government's going to be in budget repair phase, trying to reduce the deficits. So how keen are they going to be on throwing an extra billion dollars or two for additional student places, I would suggest not very keen. And so we've got this basic problem. Can we meet the demand of the Costello baby boom mid-20s students? Keep going ahead. Universities are mission-driven. They'll want to do this, but can they do this? That's the big question they've got to think about. These are huge strategic issues for universities to be um, grappling with, aren't they? And as you say, they're probably right in the chanceries of 39 universities now, starting to, having got through the immediate some of the immediate um, crisis of, of 
financial management for next year, starting to look at the horizon in some of these things. I, I wonder if I can ask just in closing to, with all of the understanding you have from your research and, and analysis of the situation, what, what hope do you have? Do, do, you, do you have hope for um, vice chancellors at universities at this point in time? Uh, certainly the wrong time to be a vice chancellor. Um, Jane Denholder, uh, we've spoken to last week, uh, retired at the right time. Uh, look, I think the main reason for hope uh, is not that anything good is likely to happen in the short term. It's more that I think there are structural reasons why higher education will continue to be an extremely important part of Australian society, that we can still expect that you know 40% plus of each age cohort will want to go to university. And we've got this larger, as I said, larger age cohort moving through the system towards higher education now. So I think there is demand for higher education. That's obviously the first thing you need to run a, a decent system. But the big question is, how are we going to pay for it? How are we going to deliver it to them? What is the mode of delivery? Where will it be delivered? Lots of really big practical and strategic questions to answer. So do you have hope for the staff and students of our universities in Australian higher education right now? Look, I think domestic students probably won't notice too much of a change if they're new, but this is going to be a very difficult people sorry, difficult period for staff in Australian universities because, frankly, none of us know whether they're going to have a job in 12 months' time, which makes it difficult to plan anything. And I actually fear that we'll have a missing generation, that the people who would have started their academic careers in the early 2020s will find that either impossibly difficult to get a job or imprudent to take a job you know, if they want to do things like buy a house or have a family because they just don't know whether they'll be able to earn an income over the next few years. And so this is the kind of thing that could still have consequences decades down the track when the people who should have started now aren't there. They've gone and done something else with their lives. Do you have hope for the minister and the department in the current situation? Well, they've, <laughs> they've landed uh, us and themselves <laughs> in this mess. So, you know, I'm sure they're working ridiculous hours trying to work out how we're going to implement this not particularly coherent, uh, very complicated policy but I don't think we should take too much pleasure from their pain because we're, we're suffering it too. Absolutely. Well, on, on that note of um, unusual hope, thanks very much for joining us on the Higher Education Experience today, Andrew Norton. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. So there's Andrew Norton, Carl. What did you make of what he had to tell us about his views of the data of what, what the sector's facing right now? Well, I'm not disappointed. He certainly gave us lots of information and, and interesting insight into what he thinks is going to take place in the next uh, 10 years, looking at different demographics and almost touching on psychographics there around how people think and feel. The, the big things that jumped out to me, there's probably three of them. One is he, he indicated that he thinks that there is a strategic reset taking place across all, all major universities. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Um, the other thing I think he, is we talk about is uh, hope. And he doesn't sound particularly hopeful for large parts of the sector. And I'd like your views on that, I suppose. And the last one is to talk about, from my perspective, really what I think is required to sort of turn some of that hope around and, um, and look at how brands can have, have bigger teeth and um, 
take be, take hold. Yeah, I thought his pointers towards Brown there towards the end are, are, are really important because for someone that's been so focused on the on the data and on the and on the policy, he's not been a frequent commentator on brand as such. And indeed, as mm. we've reflected in the past, areas like brand and culture and strategy have been areas that so many in the sector have been frightened away from in the past. But um, the mm. fact that he is observing that these things might be even more important right now is a clear sign, I think, that, that we do need to reset our own thinking about what's facing the sector. I, I'm, I'm sure that's right. What, what do you think about his comments that he, he assumes that, that strategy is, is, uh, is being reset across all major universities? Um, well, I very much took from him that he feels it's appropriate that it should be, but I, I guess your question is hinting at, and we've, we've discussed on earlier episodes of, of, of this series, the extent to which university leadership teams and vice-chancellors are getting to that at this point in time and whether they're going fast and hard enough with it. Um, I, I, I think I share some of your, your thoughts that there's a lot more to be done there. There's, there's a need for reset, but there's not the practice of that reset happening so much right at this moment in time. Is, is that what you're hinting at? Yeah, I just don't know what data points he has to indicate that that's, that's the case, that, that universities are recognising not just the need to revisit strategy, but, but how are they doing it? You know, it's not really a let's pick up a template or let's look at, you know, way things that have, we've done in the past. There's almost, you know, greenfield engineering that needs to take place with strategy. And I'd love to know what people are considering best practice. Well, I think, um, again, part of the interview with Andrew and some of our com- conversations before is that it's been focused up until till now really on the mechanics of some of that, hasn't it? It's will the job-ready graduate pr- package work in terms of changing student demand and university responses to it? Will, will universities move on from being mission-driven institutions that are finding a way of, the, of shaping the policy provisions around what they have... Uh, a commitment to achieve rather than making a more dramatic response. I sense that what you and I are describing is strategic reset being of a broader and more fundamental nature rather than just playing with the numbers. Yeah, I think so. And a more dramatic uh, game-changing approach. You know, I think you know, typically we talk about iterative change versus transformation, and this is almost beyond that. I think universities, to be successful, and this leads to the second point, which is around hope you know what what does the future look like how can we be hopeful i think that the the landscape for it to be a optimistic positive environment where universities and other higher education entities can succeed and flourish they're going to have to engineer their own future and to do that they're going to need to look well and truly outside of what they currently think their um, existing entity and identity is well i think you've really hit on something there i mean i asked him questions at the end there about what hope he had for our staff for our students for our leaders and and for indeed for the sector more broadly and the and the department and he expressed a fair bit of pessimism. What, 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 one of the things that I found most surprising in my conversation with him is the extent to which he believes, looking at the, at the data itself, that the extent to which we're moving towards going fully online, the extent to which there's scope to really make money from micro-credentials, the extent to which we're going to a fully national or even global um, university mm. economy rather than staying localised with local brand reputations... I think it's inevitable that 
when you look at the data looking backwards, you're going to see patterns that have been before. My hope for the sector is that we don't just rely on the past and that actually what is needed now and, and what I hope we will see now is people able to step back from some of the current trajectory and do something radically different because that's my hope mm. for them and for the sector more broadly of where we'll make a difference and really get the strategic reset that the sector and so many of our institutions need. Yeah, and it's not going to be, uh, how do I say this? It's not going to be something that they get to choose their own speed or choose their own adventure because the, the walls are at the door. When you look at society and, and the way that the big tech players have have really um, taken over in terms of reputation. So corporate reputation traditionally has been owned by banks and, and you know, foundational institutions. Well, the tech companies own that space now. They, they, are, they have the best reputation generally across public sentiment. Now, that it will extend into student psyche. That will extend into students feeling, well, I've got a diploma or a degree or a, some sort of certificate from Google or Amazon or whoever it might be. And in their mind, it's no longer for them to say, oh, look, it's not a sandstone university and my dad went to the University of Melbourne or whatever it might be. They are going to probably think, now their parents and the other influencers and stakeholders may not agree with this, but I, students, I really feel, will start saying, for me to be current, for me to reflect that I'm actually being educated by an organisation that understands the current and future world needs, that's going to be best met possibly by a technology player. And that's something that universities have to consider. Well, I think, again, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's, we, we've, we've had a progression over many years of universities sort of leading their markets probably rather than responding to them and building upon incremental data. And in both those in both those circumstances, I think these are different times. The the ability to to lead the sector by um, by by trying to to suggest we know what's best for it, rather than recognising mm. the market itself has fundamentally changed. The views of prospective students, the views of employers, the views of parents. People think people are in a different position now than they were in the, the start of the year, and I think we therefore must try and put ourselves in the positions of the customer here in, in, in the sector more broadly and take more radical steps. And, and the idea that we can make assumptions on what's happening from the trajectories and, the, and the, the patterns of data from the past, even from the recent past, even through 2020 itself, that's, that's a big call to rely on that, that trajectory of data with the dis disruption that's happening in the world around us. Mm. It almost gets back to that that book, Who Moved My Cheese. Have you ever read Who Moved My Cheese? I have, and the uh, follow-up to it of getting out of the maze. Have you read that one that goes with it too? No, I still I just reread Who Moved My Cheese over and over again. <laughs> well, they, they are two brilliant books, aren't they? Because they put in the persona of um, of animals being subjected to their their lives being disrupted, but. That to, together they do point, paint the picture of a changing world and the need to change our responses to it if we're going mm. to be able to move on to new lives and new ways of thriving. And I think they're great analogies for um, universities right at this point in time. I, I, I fear that we're hoping the cheese is going to come back. We're hoping that the international That's students right. will flow back. We're hoping that the campuses will reopen again. We're hoping that we'll have some online, but we'll get back to face-to-face -to -face teaching. There is a lot of hope. That word's being used a real lot, but hope without foundations and without 
a good basis to it can actually be debilitating rather than helpful. Well, and you can, there's really good examples of how this doesn't work. You know, we, in 2005 to 2008, we did a, a global relationship remodeling uh, ex- exercise with a pharmaceutical company. Now, this is a very short story, but it's actually quite relevant. The data suggested that in 1996, uh, pharmaceutical companies that actually had legitimate information to share with a doctor about a current a patient's current health were afforded four minutes of the doctor's time to go and have a consultation and explain and you know, detail the, the efficacy and the safety. Wind the clock forward 10, 10 years. They were given 30 seconds at the counter to share very high-level insights that the doctor probably knew already. And so the information was there to say things need to change. The relationship needs to be remodeled. The, we're not seeing value or you know, reciprocal value between parties. And it's the same with every, organize, every organization, every industry. You want to see reciprocal value. Um, and so what you saw with the pharmaceutical industry is essentially nothing. So in the global pilot, we proved that you could actually have a different style of relationship if you change the parameters and change the way you went to the market. And for that particular pharmaceutical company that we had a had a product suite of you know, 12-year-old products in a highly competitive category, for them to turn the tide and to start performing well based on the way that they're treating their audience, it was phenomenal. But it just it was nothing particularly special about it. We just looked at the, the data and built the strategy accordingly. Now, for the other pharmaceutical companies that didn't do that, they now don't get any access to doctors. They basically had to remove their, or you, we all probably know, all the field forces are gone. The way that they communicate with doctors is no longer the same. That's not a tragedy at all. It's just a reflection that there are better ways to communicate and better ways to get the job done. Now, whilst that's vastly out of category as an example, it's very pertinent to what we're looking at here. There is, we're seeing the data, we're seeing this, the situation to be particularly different. If we rely on the patterns, the who moved my cheese patterns, and expect things to come back, you're not going to succeed. I mean, not only are they not going to come back, someone else is going to come in and, 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 and steal the show. Like, that's what's going to happen. I think that's such a great analogy, Carl. And, um, I, you know, we've talked about hope there, and we've talked about the, the level of, of toughness of the times. I think this is such a pivotal moment. We've, we've sort of limped through towards the end of the year. We're, we've got marking taking place. Exams have, have been completed. We're, we're getting towards the end of the academic year. We've, we've gone through restructures. We've got it, we're getting budgets approved by university councils. We've sort of got through... Have we got through the storm and set ourselves up for the next phase? But if all we're going to do is then wait for the storm to pass and things to start to rebuild and be set in the way that we were before, we're missing a huge trick. And, and mm. the chance to look at what's left through all of this and to revisit strategy and to have that fundamental reset, what a great opportunity and what a great chance to really do something different. Now, you questioned at the start of this whether everyone in the sector is going through that reset. I think you're absolutely right. Every, everyone's considering whether they, they should or not, I'm sure. And perhaps that's mm. what Andrew was pointing towards. Mm. But whether, whether some will really take this as an opportunity to change and whether they'll then steal an advantage over those that don't have the courage to do so is a huge question. And one that mm. I, I know that you and I are absolutely committed to do our best to try and help people get answers to. And it's not just a question of um, uh, will they do it, it's how they do it. You know, w- what are they relying on? You know, the, that example I gave you, we had to go to, at the time, John Howard's um, research firm, which is totally out of industry, to get an insight, to get 
a different way of doing things to make sure that we're actually breaking the mold. And that's what's required here. The old, let's do some qual, let's do some quant with our trusted partners, let's go to our agency to stand this up, that ain't going to cut it. That's not the way of the future. Well, the, the, the past has been one of all strategies largely being developed in the same sort of ways. We have new leaders coming in. We have, you know, a contextual analysis of the institution and of its history and of its trajectory in the recent past. We, we talk with staff and students and partners of the current institution. We, we analyze the situation and we plot the, the onward trajectory. But what about doing something radically different at a time when radical change is afoot? Of, you know, what do what the, the futurists think of the economy of the future, of the student practices of the future, and of the educational, educational responses to those student needs of the future at this point in time? You're not going to get those ra- radical views from talking to current staff, current students, current partners, and recent data. No. And I was talking to the, uh, the chief data scientist from... Uh, PwC recently about just about this, and he was suggesting that the some of the more interesting data is actually coming from us around our health check, you know, around universities completing the, the self assessment to uh, identify what is happening for them and where the gaps are, and then we correlate that over over the the sector and work out what are the priorities and is there a, any sort of economy of scale where we can help multiple universities at any given time. I love that health check. I mean, you, you've used documents and tools like that in other sectors as a consultant over mm. many years. And in some of my own research in in the civil engineering world, I've used health checks like that for organizations to, as much as anything, ask themselves the, most, the more challenging questions and just get a sense of how they're traveling. I think this is a time for every institution in the sector to assess its health objectively against some external benchmarks and like you i'm delighted that we've been able to come up with a tool that can help them do that and we shaped that tool from the work in the royal commission you know the self-assessment that uh, asic provided and that you know uh, all the big banks went through for the royal commission into uh, misconduct in banking Um, and so we already had health checks but just to look at you know the, the way that you identify the more actionable elements and the more structural elements and then the categorization of how you go about changing or fixing those and then make commitments to those. It's a very straightforward, easy way for organizations to get a quick handle on what's happening happening for them for you know for a very low cost. Well it's easy, but it's um it's it's quite a departure from their normal practice. I mean universities have been collecting loads of data and subjecting themselves to answering loads of questions in a regulatory and compliance sense for years. Mm. And going mm. through annual reporting exercises using the same templates and the same frameworks, to, to many ex- to a great extent they've been They've been disabled from thinking radically different thoughts and having a reset approach to strategy by the the sort of environment and the and the context and the the climate that they operate in, and for us to be coming up with something that breaks the mold in that of of asking different questions that come from benchmarks from other sectors, I think is really valuable. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks, Martin. Until next week. Thanks, Carl. Thanks.